All right, welcome back. Um, we are taking a turn away from what do you, what should we call it? The the Imperial Mothership. Uh, we're going to <laughs> oh, a we're going to a junior partner. Uh, I guess the second the second second imperialist, right? They're they're oh, yeah. solid number two for imperial atrocities, especially here in the scramble for Africa. We have the French. Um, and I think we'll, in keeping with, uh, the way we did North Africa, you can, um, I'm going to let you, Dave, do the survey and I'll just interject, uh, with quotes from our friends like Aimé Césaire, Olivier de Cour-Grand-Maison, and some other, uh, anti-colonial writers, um, who have had various things to say about, about this. Okay. So over to you, Dave. All right. Well, we're starting in Algeria, chronologically much earlier than the scramble. So to go back quite a ways, uh, 1516, when Algiers was captured by Ottoman admirals, the brothers Barbarossa, Kheredin Barbarossa, and I can't remember his brother's name. Are they the first Barbarossas? Because... Yep. So... Well, other than the German emperor. Oh, the German emperor, which is yeah. when? Which is when? Uh, Third Crusade. Frederick okay, Barbarossa. so even before this. even more Oh, yeah. This. Yeah, he's a contemporary of Richard the Lionheart. Because, and... oh boy, if we get to World War II, are we ever going to talk about a Barbarossa? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All <laughs> right. Well, these two Ottoman admirals captured Algiers and uh, used it as a naval base, which it continued to be for centuries but it was also a great base for piracy in the Western Mediterranean. And that meant that when they got a chance, some European powers were interested in fighting against these uh, Berber pirates who became known as Barbary pirates, so therefore the Barbary coast. So I'm jumping ahead to 1681. Louis XIV asked his admiral, Duquesne, to fight these pirates and ordered a large-scale attack on Algiers. The The pretext was, of course, assisting Christian captives held in slavery. So there's your slavery, anti-slavery angle already. So they bombed Tripoli and Algiers from, between 1685 and 1688. What's a 1685 bomb? Is it a, a, it's a cannon Cannon, ball? Cannonballs. Yeah. But they also had other... Uh, they had they had exploding shot. They had okay. uh, chain shot as well. So two cannonballs with a chain between them. Okay, so they're like smashing up walls and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So an ambassador from Algiers visited the court of King Louis in Versailles, and they signed a treaty in 1690 that lasted for for quite a while. And you know the terms of the treaty are basically okay. So when you're pirating stuff, don't attack French ships and the French coast and so on. Again in France and another hundred years later during the French Revolution and during the, the regime of the Directory. So this is the First French Republic, 1795 or so on. There were uh, merchants of Algiers, uh, Jewish merchants, the, the Bakri and the, the Busnak families, and they provided a lot of grain for Napoleon's soldiers in the uh, Italian campaign, 1796. So there's another link between Algiers and and uh, France. And then just as a little note that I found funny, uh, 
Bonaparte refused to pay the bill, claiming that it was excessive. <laughs> so he took the grain and didn't pay for it. Uh, after the French Revolution, 1820, uh, Louis XVIII paid Algiers about half of what the Directory owed them. And this is the, the day of Algiers acting on behalf of the Bakri family. He, he was asking for like a quarter of a million francs. Now this day, <clears throat> pardon me, technically he's part of the Ottoman Empire, but they're very far away. So he had a lot of autonomy, almost, you know, practically independence, but he wasn't very strong. Uh, he's been described as weak politically, economically, and militarily. And you still have pirates using, you know, his coastline for their bases and raiding European and American ships in the Mediterranean. Now, both Britain and France paid them not to. They were paying protection money to these Barbary pirates. American Revolution. Well, now American ships are not covered by British protection payments. They're on their own. So the Americans had to negotiate their own deal with Morocco, uh, Algiers, Tripoli, and Tunis. And in 1795, they did. 83 American sailors were released in return for, you know, a cash payment. And then the Americans borrowed from Napoleon's book and defaulted on their payments. So the Pasha of Tripoli, uh, Yusuf Karamanli, declared war on them. This is the first Barbary War. The Americans sent some ships, bombarded Tripoli. Uh, they signed a treaty. American sailors were ransomed. And I guess the, uh, the Pasha agreed the Americans didn't have to pay any more tribute. But then the day of Algiers uh, in 1812 declared war on the Americans as well. I think the date is significant, right? 1812, Americans are yeah. at war with Britain. But this is so interesting to to see the Americans uh, fighting a naval war so far from the U.S. Like they're in Africa already. Yeah, uh, don't forget though. One of the causes of the War of eighteen twelve was the British intercepting American merchant ships, you know, to prevent them from trading with their enemy France. Right. So American merchants are all over the place. They're all over the world by this point. But but this kind of naval, this is probably the first naval Flexing war. Flexing of that, American muscle? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But it but it's also cute because they're uh, they're negotiating with terrorists. Of course. I thought they didn't do that. <laughs> later. Later. And then or maybe, again. <laughs> or maybe pirates aren't the same as terrorists. I don't, I don't know. And then they did it again. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so there's another... Uh, Barbary War in 1815 when an American fleet arrives and uh, there's a new day of Algiers by then so he releases American prisoners and agrees okay no more tribute no more ransom but now the balance of power is shifting the European powers are no longer involved in the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars so they're at liberty to pay uh, Algiers back so there was an Anglo-Dutch punitive expedition that bombarded Algiers in 1816. And then the day of Algiers was forced to sign the Barbary treaties, basically that he's going to leave 
European ships alone and stop supporting piracy, etc., etc. And it's interesting, too, because this period, right, the very early 1800s is when a lot of um, Ottoman territories kind of go independent under the local governor. So obviously Egypt being the yeah. the most str- stark example under Muhammad Ali, but other territories had the same thing happen. I mean, lots of the territories were under Muhammad Ali, but um, obviously this is also going on in, in this part of the Otto- Ottoman Empire. Yeah, with one possible exception, I think uh, Tripoli in Libya, so Tripolitania, the, the coast of Libya, was still directly controlled by uh, the Ottoman Turks, whereas Tunisia and Algeria are, as you say, you know, pretty much autonomous at this point. So we jump to 1830, and this is when France's attitude to Algeria changed rather dramatically. <clears throat> so if you if you heard our earlier episodes on the revolution or attempted revolution of 1830 in France. Uh, King Charles X was extremely unpopular with the French people. And it's almost as if he could feel a revolution coming. So he wanted to distract his subjects by a foreign adventure. This is, you know, getting to be pretty standard, right? You're in trouble at home, start a war somewhere else, as a distraction. And he did this, uh, basically, I'll go and have a nice little patriotic skirmish with the day of Algiers, and that'll distract attention from how ineptly I'm handling all of the domestic issues in France. So he sent 16, uh, sorry, 600 ships. He used, uh, they had an old contingency plan from 1808, Napoleon's, Uh, lying around for the invasion of Algeria. This was news to me. I didn't realize Napoleon had considered invading Algeria, but apparently he he drew drew up some plans. (laughs) That guy had a lot of energy. A lot of energy. Actually, I think this is what the soldiers of every army in the world do, is draw up contingency plans. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You you might laugh, but I saw the, 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 I think it was the 1921 Canadian contingency plan for the invasion of the U.S., Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. We were going to cross, like, near uh, Niagara and seize Buffalo. And then? taught them a lesson. What's the next move? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the plan wasn't... It's just a contingency. (laughs) I think they were expecting somebody else to be involved. Yes. Well, 1921, there's a good chance you could get... uh, Britain. Britain, yeah. Yeah, maybe. So 1830, the French invade Algeria. General de Bourmont landed uh, west of Algiers with 34,000 soldiers. Like, that's a pretty big army. Uh, The Algerian day had Janissaries, of course, his his Turkish troops. And he got contributions from the Bay of Constantine and the Bay of Oran. He also had support from the Kabyles. This is a, a Berber ethnic group. So the numbers are pretty close. Of course, the French had better artillery and, you know, superior organizations. Their forces were more homogenous. There was a battle fought at Stawili. Uh, I tried to look up, you know, how, how many 
were there and what happened, but you know, even the, the wiki page gives different numbers for the Algerian forces. Basically, I don't think anybody knows anymore. But this uh, resulted in a French victory, and after a three-week campaign, French forces entered Algiers. And the day agreed to surrender in exchange for his freedom and to be able to retain possession of his own personal wealth. So <laughs> he sold out his... Uh, his city, his country. That is the most literal definition of selling out that there, that there is. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So five days later, he left on a French ship, exiling himself. And uh, apparently about 2,500 of the Janissaries also left. And this is the end of Ottoman rule of the territory. 313 years of Ottoman rule, over. Uh, one side effect of this invasion was the French began to recruit the first Zouaves. I guess they were impressed or, or liked the colorful dress of the Janissaries and, and some of the Algerian infantry. So they started creating their own fancy dress units and called them Zouaves. And then they also began recruiting Spahis, cavalry regiments of Algerian and Berber uh, horsemen. Then they went ahead and expropriated all the land belonging to Turkish settlers. These were known as Beliks, and they lost all their land. Uh, this conquest took place, it's, sorry, it started under Charles X, but then you had a revolution in France, and now you have King Louis-Philippe taking over. So one king started the invasion and another king inherits possession of Algeria. I think this is also the first uh, use of the term Algeria, um, coined by one of Napoleon's marshals, uh, Sult, Marshal Sult, and he apparently changed the name. It, it was known as the French possessions in North Africa, which is a little wordy even for the French. And he just started calling it Algeria in 1839, and it caught on. Just based on the name of the city, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, <clears throat> pardon me. Louis-Philippe uh, recalled the Duke of Rovigo uh, because he was using overtly violent <laughs> repression. And Louis-Philippe wanted to avoid a war with Morocco. The border between Morocco and Algeria wasn't really drawn on any maps. It was pretty fluid. So Louis-Philippe wanted to avoid a conflict with Morocco. I mean, he just got onto his throne, right? So maybe starting a war right away would be a bad idea. Uh, so he tried a little intimidation, little displays of military might, sending warships cruising by. But he also sent a, a mission to the Sultan and tried to negotiate some kind of new border. But the Sultan of Morocco... Uh, refused to evacuate uh, Tlemcen, that area, I guess partly because Algerian refugees were pouring into Morocco, and some of them called for his protection. I mean, yeah, there's a whole, the refugee thing is interesting. There's a whole book by this um, scholar, Issa Blumi, uh, called Ottoman Refugees. I guess it's a little later, 1870 to, like, 1878 to 1930 eight or nine or something oh. it's, it's just like 
all this is like a whole issue right because what as the empire is kind of falling apart <laughs> there's and the whole structure is is changing right from what it was so oh gosh yeah mm. yeah so now we have french colonial administration <clears throat> and it was called it was uh, described as the regime du sabre government of the sword subtle yeah Very subtle well call it like it is so they had a governor general who was a high-ranking army officer, and he was given civil and military jurisdiction together, and he was directly responsible to the minister of war. So it gives you an idea of how we're going to approach this. And the first one was uh, General Bugeaud. But despite the military government, they uh, didn't waste much time uh, acquiring profits. So a fellow named Bertrand Clozel formed a company to uh, acquire agricultural land. And even though, you know, they were officially discouraged from doing it, they started subsidizing uh, settlement by European farmers. There was a bit of a land rush, not a gold rush, but a land rush, you know, grab something in Algeria. And Clozel saw the potential of the Mdija Plain and he envisioned large-scale cotton production there. Now, he became governor general from 1835 to 36, and used his position to make huge private investments in land. And he encouraged army officers and uh, administrators and bureaucrats to do the same. So this is kind of like a Rhodes before Rhodes was Rhodes. I mean... Maybe there was something to the British saying they did it all because the French to stop the French from doing it first. But this is qualitatively different yeah. because these are military officers right, in administrative model. positions who are now using those positions to enrich themselves. Which and I that, guess is less um, efficient in terms of money making than the British model somehow. Yeah, and I think it, it's all—it's also going to lead even more directly to using the army to enforce yeah. or protect your your commercial right. interests, right? I know, yeah. I know, this is exactly what happens with the British and the Americans, but with the French, the line is even shorter and more direct. Yeah, and it's notable how early on in the yes. process this is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they created a a French zone of occupation. Uh, large farms, large uh, agricultural operations. They built factories and businesses and hired local labor. I don't think that they enslaved local labor, but I'm sure you know you can yeah, guess for in yourself what the again, was. like yeah, in everything but name, right? Basically, yeah, yeah. So this is a testimony from Lieutenant Colonel Lucien de Montagnac. Uh, 1843, he wrote a letter to a friend. All populations who do not accept our conditions must be despoiled. Everything must be seized, devastated, without distinction of age or sex. Grass must not grow anymore where the French army has set foot. Who wants the end wants the means, whatever may say our philanthropists. I personally warn all good soldiers whom I have the honor to lead that if they happen to bring me a living Arab, they will receive a beating with the flat of the saber. 
This is how, my dear friend, we must make war against Arabs. Kill all men over the age of 15, take all their women and children, load them onto naval vessels, send them to the Marquesas Islands or elsewhere. In one word, annihilate everything that will not crawl beneath our feet like dogs. Jesus. No, Montagnac. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that. Yeah, no. Now, <clears throat> there's a, an interesting dynamic going on here. It, it reminds me of the great game, you know, in, in India between the British and the Russians. The British are going to excuse a lot of their actions of, you know, the Russians are coming. So from the very beginning, Louis-Philippe is lukewarm about taking over Algeria. Remember, he didn't launch the invasion. He, he inherited this. But if we don't keep Algeria, the British will. So we have to take firm control to keep the British out. And of course, uh, chicken or the egg, did, did the French act this way because they met resistance or did they inspire resistance because of the way they started? But there was armed resistance to the French occupation from the very beginning. The Bay of Constantine refused to cede territories when they you know, tried to negotiate it from him. So in 1836, uh, Clozel invaded, suffered a humiliating defeat and was forced to <clears throat> uh, retreat. But the following year, uh, Constantine was captured. So the French conquest goes on uh, until they ran into a, well, a, a worthy opponent. That's one way to call him. This is Abdel Kader. Uh, I don't know which name is appropriate, uh, Ibn Muhyiddin or El Hassani El Jazeri. Oh, yeah. Um, Al Jazairi is just, he's from Al Jazair, which is the name of the country. Yep. So probably Muhyiddin might be his family name. <coughs> Sorry. Yeah. Uh, Abdel Qadr's father claimed descent from the Prophet Muhammad through the Idrisid dynasty. So he is thus a Sharif, <clears throat> and he's entitled to use the uh, Al-Hassani descendant of uh, Hassan ibn Ali. I, I, that sounds fairly important to me. This would be somebody with some real status, right? Yeah, which I guess must be important for becoming a rebel leader. Yeah. So he grew up in his father's religious school, got the traditional education in theology, jurisprudence, and grammar. It's said that he could read and write by the age of five. So he was a, a gifted stu student and uh, became a, a Hafiz at the age of 14 because he was able to recite the Quran by heart. So he went to Oran for further education and in 1825, he went on the Hajj, his pilgrimage to Mecca with his father. Apparently, they also traveled to Damascus and Baghdad, uh, visited the graves of noted Muslims. So he's a religious enthusiast and maybe a little more cosmopolitan than most. And then they, they passed through Egypt on the way home, and he was impressed by the reforms being carried out by Muhammad Ali, uh, of Egypt and Abdel Qadr returned to Algiers just a few months before the French invaded in 1830 and 
I, I guess some of the, the people turned to Abdel Qadr's father and asked him to lead a resistance campaign. So they were involved in early attacks near Oran. And this is where Abdel Qadr began to come to the fore. So there was a meeting of Western tribes in 1832, and he was elected Amir al-Muminin. Yeah, the, the leader of the faithful. Okay, so yeah. uh, Emir. By the way, I believe at some point uh, Mullah Omar of the Taliban was <laughs> voted by his followers to be the Amir al-Muminin. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, his his father refused the position because he was too old, but Abdul Qadir took the lead. So he's now leading a resistance group uh, and leading uh, punitive raids. I couldn't find out against whom. Is this against the French or is it against collaborators with the French? But I would think usually it starts with collaborators, right? You know, who knows? Well, yeah, punitive makes it seem that way. But Abdel Qadr uh, had also pretty good politics, and he succeeded in uniting the tribes in his region, basically the, the province of Oran. And the French commander-in-chief in that area, General de Michel, he saw Abdel Qadr as the principal enemy, but also the principal representative for the area. And in 1834, they signed a treaty, the, the de Michel Treaty, and the French basically ceded pretty much total control of the province of Iran to Abdel Qadir. Now, this is one way of, I guess, pacifying the region, at least temporarily, and keeping Abdel Qadir in the West. Right, it, it kind of moving towards an indirect rule. It's interesting how these formulas always, like, I, it's not necessarily even that they're, um, you know, they have a manual, but the the solutions the same solutions seem to present themselves to imperialists uh, at different times right yeah yeah pragmatic i mean yeah. we're busy fighting these other guys so if we can get this guy to you know stop fighting us we'll but it did it did give uh, abdel qadir considerable status uh, and you know basically raised his prestige among the berbers but also with with the french so he started uh, from this treaty, imposing his rules on uh, different tribes, the Shalif, Miliana, the Medea. And by now, the French, I guess they were winning elsewhere and started to be unhappy with the terms of the Demichel Treaty, which they had negotiated. So now this treaty is unfavorable. Demichel was recalled and they replaced him with General Trezel and hostilities resumed. So that's a pretty short treaty. The, uh, there was a battle at Makta, uh, I think 1835, where Abdel Qadr's warriors met the, the French and defeated them. A rather unexpected defeat for the French. Uh, I, I don't know if it's true that the Algerians piled the heads of their defeated French enemies in a pyramid, but... I mean, the source is a, an 1867 biography of Abdel Qadr by an Englishman, Charles Henry Churchill. So I don't know about the citation on that one. I'm sure the defeat stung, though. So the French stepped up their military campaign, sent new commanders, 
and they won the next several important encounters, including uh, 1836, the Battle of Sikak. But um, the French seem to be ambivalent towards Algeria now. Maybe the, maybe the conquest was proving too expensive. <clears throat> maybe it was too obvious that, you know, certain people were profiting from land grabs in Algeria. And, you know, what, what good is this to the rest of France? So when General Bugeaud was sent to Algeria in 1837, he was authorized to use all means to induce Abdelkader to make overtures of peace. So he went with negotiations, they lasted a long time, and they resulted in a new treaty, the Treaty of Tafna, which gave even more control uh, in, in the interior to Abdelkader, but he recognized France's right to imperial sovereignty. I, I'm not sure I understand his reasoning for, for signing this treaty. Maybe it let him extend his power into neighboring provinces. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's hard, always, hard it's, it's always the the conditions under which it's signed is never uh, fully recorded, right? Yeah, true, true. But it, it, at this point, Abdelkader's concerns seem to be local rather than national. Not surprising because you know the idea of a nation of Algeria. You know, the French just cooked that up. I, I'm not sure that all the people living in Algeria thought of themselves as the same right. people at all. Yeah. These things are created out of these wars. Yeah. yeah. But he certainly benefited from the peace. He consolidated, I, I guess you could call it his own state. He had a capital at uh, Tagdempt. Uh, he, he played down his political power uh, and declined the title of Sultan. I don't know if that was humility or, or, or just tactical, but it, it was probably wise. He, he concentrated on his spiritual authority and created a, a broadly theocratic state. Most positions of authority in his uh, government were held by, you know, senior religious figures. And even when they formed their own currency, it was named the Muhammadiyah. Uh, they named their currency after the prophet. Uh, he expanded in, in God we trust. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, true. So Abdel Qadir expanded uh, to the south, fought against the Bay of Constantine, and by 1838 he had a pretty considerable area under his direction control. Abdel Qadir was an equal opportunity employer. He seems to have been able to find good talent, regardless of nationality or ethnicity uh, he employed jews and christians he had a, a standing army of about 2000 men supported by volunteers from the local tribes and he had his own in in the towns of the interior he had his own arsenals and warehouses and workshops and he stored items to be sold for the purchase of arms and you know who are you going to buy weapons from the british uh, meanwhile, he lived frugally. Apparently, he still lived in a tent, uh, taught his people the need for austerity, and then also began educating them, apparently about concepts like nationality and independence. So, in, interesting guy. 
Yeah, I mean, I, 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 there must have been debates like in the Ottoman court, and right there, there. I mean, even maybe did was Mehmet Ali this yep. on this track too? He was, right? Yep. Yeah, and I'm so. sure they were much more worried. The Ottomans would be much more worried about Egypt. Yeah, yeah, and Syria, and Greece. Don't forget the the Greek. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So the the Turks had an awful lot on their plate at this time. I'm sure what, what was going on with the French in Algeria, they probably wrote that off. Uh, speaking of the French, uh, the Treaty of Tafna, they decided, was unfavorable, so <laughs> forget that. And they sent an expeditionary force uh, against uh, Abdel Qadir, who defeated them in 1839. So they officially declared war on him. And then you have a period of uh, stalemate, you know, indecisive fighting. And then Bujo came back, General Bujo came back to Algeria, this time as governor general. Uh, at first, Abdul Qadir was encouraged because this is the guy that had signed the Treaty of Tafna with him. But uh, on this occasion, Bujo's tactics had changed radically. Uh, this time, I'm not negotiating, I'm conquering. Uh, Bourgeot wrote, I will enter into your mountains, I will burn your villages and your harvests, I will cut down your fruit trees. I have often heard in France men who consider it reprehensible that crops are burned, silos empty, and lastly that unarmed men, women, and children are seized. For me, this is a regrettable necessity, but one to which any people that wants to make war on the Arabs will have to submit. Interesting, eh? That it's the like it's the Arabs' fault that we have to fight this. Way. <laughs> it's just so hard, but yeah, they're willing to do it. Yeah, I. It, it's also yeah. It's very. It's it's very cross cultural. You know, it's they sound just like Germans, just like the English. You know, it's like they they put themselves in these situations and then they end up justifying them almost you know word for word with the same language. It's, it was necessary to destroy the village in order in to order pacify to it. it. Yeah, yeah. Every damn time. And prominent liberal Alexandre de Tocqueville approved. I have more. I have more of him too. <laughs> okay. So here's here's de Tocqueville on Bujo's tactics. He is the first who has known how to apply ubiquitously and simultaneously the kind of war, which is the only kind of war that is feasible in Africa. Apparently, de Tocqueville was inspired by his trip to America. He, he's the fellow who wrote... Democracy uh, in America. Yep. Uh, and apparently, while in America, he found a model which he favored for application in Algeria. <laughs> so, number one, make sure to prevent a fusion of the peoples. Miscegenation, the which is a Latin word, I guess. Yep. Yeah. So, keep the French and the Arabs apart. Uh, second, have two clearly distinct sets of laws, one for each peoples. Uh, third, encourage French settlers to go there. Give them great opportunities to make their fortune, plus social conditions which conform to their habits and tastes. And fourth, abandon humanitarian scruples. As he said, once we have committed the major violence of the conquest, I believe that we must not shrink from the minor forms of violence absolutely required to consolidate it. 
Nice, eh? There's a, there's a specific quantum, yeah, of, of violence. <laughs> but it's also like you would think he would say, you know, once we've done a lot of violence, we, uh, you know, we won't have to do more or something. But he's actually saying once we've done a lot, we'll still have to do more. So Yeah. <laughs> You're kind of committed now to that path, right? <clears throat> and, it, and it would be wrong to abandon? I don't know. By the way, these are not things that he's writing in his diary. These are not things he's writing for later. Po- he's, a, he's a member of the Chamber of Deputies, and he's saying these things in the Chamber of Deputies in 1846. So, unfortunately, France is not America. There's opposition from French radicals, and and some of the Republicans are not quite as liberal as de Tocqueville. So de Tocqueville and, and others like him are, are caught on the horns of a dilemma. They would love to follow the American model and simply exterminate the natives. You know, the way they see it, Algerians equal Indians, the indigenous people of America. Yeah. Uh, they use terms like noxious beasts, right. despicable race. There's one writer later on who says something like, uh, he says, you know, it's un far west à découvrir, un Californie à exploiter. So it's basically a far west for, it's going to be our far west or it's going to be our California. Right. But they, but here's the dilemma. It is not only cruel, but absurd and impracticable to want to snuff out or exterminate the natives. Because we need them for their labor. The labor problem. South so Africa case, all over again. <laughs> yeah, so in this case, the Algerians are actually black Americans, <laughs> slaves or ex-slaves, whichever way you want to do it. So French liberals are having trouble deciding, are the Algerians Indians or are they black? Yeah. And which way do we treat them or use them? Meanwhile, <clears throat> Abdelkader was turning to guerrilla warfare, and he was pretty good at it. Uh, up until 1842, he had quite a few victories. Now, there were truces, tactical truces. They didn't last. I don't think either side expected them to last. And Bujot began adapting to Abdelkader's guerrilla tactics. He, he would, uh, Abdelkader would strike fast and then disappear. And he was using mainly light infantry, but also, obviously, cavalry. But the French began to increase their own mobility. And then they started the scorched earth policy. So you uh, destroy villages, cut down trees, smash, burn, everything. And then you force the people who live in these areas to starve. And that way, they can't support Abdel Qadr, and they can't provide supplies for him. So by 1841-1842, Abdel Qadr's, you know, lost a lot of his support. He's uh, been pushed further into the interior of Iran, lost control of Tlemcen, and his lines of communications with Morocco have, you know, partially cut. So he actually had to retreat into Morocco for 
you know, I guess for a, a break, for a, a refit. Uh, and fortunately for him, Sultan Abdel Rahman, uh, you know, was on his side, opposing the French. There was a battle between the French and the Moroccans. Uh, the French formed square to resist Moroccan cavalry charges. They lost 27 killed, 99 wounded. Meanwhile, the Moroccans lost 800. And I guess the Sultan lost a bit of his enthusiasm for fighting the French after that. Uh, I'm not sure if that's why Abdel Qadr left Morocco, whether he was you know, encouraged to leave or whether he decided to, but he continued to fight the French and then uh, defeated them again, Battle of Sidi Ibrahim. These are, these are small battles, by the way. Uh, Abdel Qadr really never had more than 500 horsemen when he gave battle. I think this was part of his tactics. Rather than gather every man he could get, he, he kept it small. That way a reverse wouldn't be a complete disaster. So at this battle, Sidi Ibrahim, he managed to isolate and surround 80 Frenchmen. He captured the French uh, adjutant, I guess the second in command, and he sent him back to persuade the remainder to surrender. And instead, this guy encouraged the survivors to fight to the death. So when they, when they finally recaptured this guy, Abdel Qadr had him beheaded. The, the, a few of the French broke out with a, a bayonet charger uh, and 16 of them escaped. So why, what's so, why is he so good when, when his ally did so badly? He just doesn't do those, those things that... Well, by the number of, of killed by the, uh, that the Moroccans lost at Isli, you get the idea that they gathered a huge army. And then just got... Yeah, well, lots of Fire. targets for yeah. French guns and, and artillery and so on. Keep it small. Keep it fast. Yeah. Don't right. concentrate your forces when they have that kind of firepower, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, the scorched earth tactics worked, and Abdel Qadr was eventually forced to surrender. He He was a power in the West, but he wasn't able to get support from Eastern tribes. And uh, basically had been cut off from Morocco as well. Uh, Abdel Rahman signed a treaty with the French in 1844, the Treaty of Tangiers, and he outlawed Abdel Qadr from his entire kingdom. And then backstabbed him, secretly sent soldiers to attack Abdel Qadr and uh, they ended up fighting. Abdel Qadr routed the, the Moroccans, <laughs> captured them. And uh, I think one of them was the nephew of the Sultan of Morocco. Um, but he had to surrender to the French in December of 1847. Surrendered to French General de, de, de La Mauricière in exchange for a promise that he would be allowed to go into exile. He wanted to go to uh, Alexandria or to uh, Acre, so Egypt or, well, Acre in Palestine, but Turkish territory. And apparently, Abdel Qadr's comment on his own surrender was, and God undoes what my hand has done. I'm not sure he actually said that, but... It's a good line, though. <laughs> yeah, it sounds good. It sounds good. It's very fatalistic, you know, often... 
fighting men have that or you know fighters have that yeah uh the french <clears throat> refused to honor the promise that general de la mauricière made and abdelkader was shipped to france and he ended up in captivity there with his family and a few followers they were detained at the chateau of amboise and uh the damp conditions in the castle uh, were pretty bad for his his health so they did the same as they did to Toussaint de Vertoux, basically. Yeah. They put him in although, a damp although Abdelkader was something of a a uh, public figure in France, he was a cause célèbre, and and there were some high profile people who heard about his situation and uh, started making some noise. Uh, Emile de Girardin, Victor Hugo, and uh, future Prime Minister Olivier, they, they started a, like a public opinion campaign to raise awareness over what was being done to him. And, and others joined in. Lord Londonderry visited Abdelkader in Amboise and then wrote to the French president, at that point it was Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte, and appealed for the emir's release. Now, Louis-Napoleon, we've already covered his reign. This is the, the future Emperor Napoleon III. At this point, he's been elected president. It's just after the revolution of 1848, and Abdelkader was already imprisoned. But here's an opportunity for Louis Napoleon to break with some of the policies of the previous regime. So it doesn't, you know, doesn't cost him a lot. In 1852, Abdelkader was released and was given a pension, an annual pension of 100,000 francs. All he had to do was take an oath never again to disturb Algeria. But that's still four years later, no? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but the public opinion time. campaign and right. Napoleon's wish to, you know, be cool uh, basically yeah. led to Abdelkader being released. So he traveled to uh, Turkey. He went to Bursa first. And then he went to Damascus and plunged himself back into theology and philosophy, wrote a philosophical treatise, it was translated into French, uh, published in 1858 under the title Rappel à l'intelligent, avis à l'indifférent. And it was republished in 1877. And he also wrote a book on the Arabian horse. I'm not sure where that came from, but... <laughs> Was he a, even a big cavalry guy? I didn't, I didn't. Uh, no. Maybe he just liked the breed. Like, yeah. And he wasn't finished in in uh, 1860. Conflict broke out between in in uh, Lebanon between the Druze and the Maronite Christians, and this spread into Damascus. And local Druze uh, attacked the Christian quarter and you know massacred a couple of thousand people, three thousand. Abdelkader had gotten wind of this. He warned the French consul that violence was imminent. And when it, you know, when it finally did happen and the riot got bloody, he sheltered a large number of Christians in his own house and sent his, uh, his eldest sons into the streets to, to offer protection to any Christians that were you know, being threatened. And quite a few of these survivors basically said afterwards that Abdelkader was instrumental in, in saving them. Here's a quote wow. from one. We were in consternation, all of us quite convinced that our last hour had arrived. In that expectation of death, in those indescribable moments of anguish, heaven, however, sent us a savior. Abdelkader appeared, surrounded by his Algerians, around 40 of them. He was on horseback and without arms. 
His handsome figure, calm and imposing, made a strange contrast with the noise and disorder that reigned everywhere. <coughs> and apparently, his role in, you know, this uh, Syrian riot and, and massacre uh, got him a lot of international attention. The French government increased his pension to 150,000 francs, and they also bestowed on him the Grand Cross of the Legion of Honor. He won an award from Greece, the Grand Cross of the Redeemer, uh, the Order of the Mejiji from Turkey, first class, and the Order of Pope Pius IX from the Vatican. Abraham Lincoln sent him a gift, a pair of uh, inlaid pistols. Great Britain sent him a shotgun, gold inlaid shotgun. And, you know, I, <laughs> this is just so weird. You go from the big enemy in Algeria to, we're trying to crush. And to, being, now, to being imprisoned in a damp room to freeze to death. Yeah. Yeah. To uh, now being celebrated as a friend of, uh, of France. In 1865, he, went, he was invited back to Paris by Napoleon III and got like an official reception. Uh, one of his sons went back to <laughs> went back to Algeria and was uh, trying to stir up the tribes around Constantine. This is in 1871, and Abdel Qadir disowned him. So I guess when he took an oath, he kept it. Uh, in 2013, uh, American film director Oliver Stone announced that he was planning a film, a biopic, on Abdel Qadir. <laughs> I don't think it came out, but yeah, I guess that's uh, these films go into development hell, <laughs> as they sometimes call it. Um, I think Danny Glover was planning a film on Toussaint Louverture for many years as well. Oh, really? Yeah, but it, it couldn't couldn't get it. Um, uh, let me add a few things to to your uh, to the Algeria and Abdelkader. Uh, discussion. Um, this is from Olivier Lecour Grand Maison. The book is called Colonisé, Exterminé sur la guerre et l'état colonial. So col colonize, exterminate on war and the colonial state. Uh, let me figure out when this book is from. Everything in French books is different. The table of contents is at the back. Yeah. <laughs> the date of publication is at the back. It's uh, 2006. Achève imprimir en juin 2006. You can help me with a few of these translations, Dave. Sure. Um, so uh, apparently, yeah, by 1880, we can talk about this, but they were already saying that, um, or 1836, apparently, Lamartine had said uh, they want to, to, to solve, you know, solving the colonial problem in a different way, like uh, by making it just a province of France which is sort of unique, I guess, um, instead of, uh, you know, the different British models uh, for Canada or the, or the U.S. or South Africa or whatnot. Um, but then uh, a little bit more on, um, on the practices, the, you know, the, the colonial violence of the French being no different from, <laughs> from anyone else's. Uh, so Tocqueville uh, said something like captured or wounded, the Arab is still treated as an enemy. Uh, Tocqueville wrote a, the book 1841. He wrote uh, Travail sur l'Algérie. So like uh, wor a work on Algeria, I guess it's, you could say. Um, 
He said the majority of officers encouraged their soldiers not to spare anyone. They killed everyone they encountered. Um, so here's a here's a thing. Maybe Dave, you can help me. Pour ma part, j'ai rapporté de d'Afrique la notion affligeante qu'un moment nous faisons la guerre d'une manière beaucoup plus barbare que les Arabes eux-mêmes. So basically, we fought the war more barbarically than Arabs fight among themselves. Yes, and I feel really bad about it. And I, oh, <laughs> there it is. is. That what affligeante is? Yeah, I came back from Africa with the you know horrible idea that we make war more barbarically than the Arabs do. Mm, poor, poor, yeah, poor guy. Um, and then he says also, la société musulmane beaucoup plus misérable, plus désordonnée, plus ignorante et plus barbare qu'elle n'était avant nous connaître. So if so, Muslim society here is more miserable, poor, disordered, ignorant, and barbaric than they would have been if they never met us, basically. <laughs> right. Um, so. There's another person, Gasparin, who basically says, with these people, i.e. Arabs, there's only one uh, mode of, of, I guess, one means, which is extermination. And he's actually saying, um, he's actually against it. Uh, he's, he's critical of various, um, Al their Algeria policy um, and denouncing um, the methods of the army of Africa, which he said was basically uh, criminal. Um, he also, okay, devant la gravité de la situation. Um, right. So he said, one of another, another deputy, or maybe the same guy, Gas Gasparin, he said, uh, ne recommençons pas en plein uh, 19th century l'histoire de la conquête de l'Amérique. N'imitons pas les, les, des sanglants exemples que l'opinion du genre humain est à flétrie. So he's basically saying, let's not repeat the conquest of America now right. in the 19th century. Um, 18, oh, and then there's these particular uh, horrors that I think you mentioned many of them, but like one Lamartine uh, reported to the assembly in 1846 that um, they killed all the people um, in a village of Jurjura, uh, they killed all the combatants uh, with swords, and then the rest were um, what's brûlé sur les toitures, incendié des maisons. They burned them in their houses. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's another uh, tribe of Wisia. They uh, they were sleeping in their tents at night. Uh, an expedition on April seventh, and they shot them and killed them with swords, without exception of age or uh, gender um, by these auxiliary cavalry. Um, just just yeah. a, a context on Lamartine. Yeah. He started out as a monarchist, Okay. gravitated to liberalism, and then went a little further and became, I guess what I would call a moderate socialist. Right. And started adopting some of the ideas of uh, Saint-Simon that we talked about much earlier in, uh, right. in our episodes. And, and he actually, ran, sorry, ran for president oh. uh, of the of the republic after eighteen in eighteen forty nine. Uh, lost Louis. Oh, I think he got eighteen thousand votes. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> Whereas Louis Napoleon got you know like six million. But anyway, um, and they didn't hide uh, the practices. So 
there's an account of like Saint Arnaud who wrote an account of house to house fighting. Mm-hmm. He said uh, they didn't take prisoners. Uh, there's another thing where he said, um, "What a scene! What carnage!" Um, La sang fait nappe sur les marches was something about blood, blood run- running in the streets, blood running in the streets. Um, pas un cri plainte l'échappé au morin. They're not even crying or something. They receive yeah. death. Uh, okay, can you read? Can you translate this one? Pas un cri. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. So basically, kill or be killed, uh, and they receive their death with the rage of desperation that hmm. so they're gritting their teeth oh i see gnashing their teeth or something and then the, this one is crazy he says les populations civiles les femmes notamment ont dû payer un lourd tribut car s'il est ra- rarement fait mention de viol commis par les soldats ils ont dans doute et assez nombreux en déparés circonstances so there's lots of rape um not no figures about it um they destroy fruit trees uh it's interesting because that's also the british around this time right they're destroying fruit trees in afghanistan so the the french are destroying fruit trees the war on fruit uh, continues um we say around eighteen thousand fruit trees were cut down uh, houses were burned uh they killed women children old people um yeah, there's. They said, "Etant eux-mêmes honteux uh, de la guerre des Vandales, qu'on leur avait fait, fait prendre des atrocités qu'ils avaient commis." So he compares themselves to the Vandals, basically. Well, he says on their way back, the French soldiers yeah. were ashamed of the yeah. atrocities that they'd committed. Yeah. Uh, so that was by Baudicourt, who's a journalist. Um, I think this he was also against the war. And then there's Montagnac. Uh, I think you've already mentioned this, uh, but yeah. Montagnac, Lettre d'un soldat. So he wrote his own, um, you know, book about letters. And ce qui concerne le sort réservé aux femmes, il répond à son correspondant qui lui avait demandé précision. Okay, anyway. So, quelques-uns quelques sont gardés comme otages, les autres sont échangés contre des chevaux et le reste est vendu ou l'enchère comme bête de somme. Voilà qu'à l'on fait dans ce pays des fleurs que la nature fait éclore pour embaumer notre vie. So, he's basically like talking about how they uh took women and like distributed so, them yeah the ones who them. weren't killed were yeah. kept as hostages or traded for horses and yeah. the others were sold at auction yeah yeah and i think you're gonna talk about this but the, as far as the popular they estimate that the population uh declined by almost 30 percent um between 1830 and 1872, so from 3 million to 2.125 million yeah. uh, over the course of 40 years. So that's, pre- yeah, pretty devastating stuff. And yeah, these two books by Olivier de Lecourt, Grand Maison, are pretty good. It's, there's Colonisie Exterminée, and then there's um, La République Impériale Politique et Racisme d'État. And there's this, uh, I got a shout out my colleague Stefan Kipfer, who's a bit of a Francophile, <laughs> and he uh, he loaned me all these, and he told me 
he needs them back in the condition that he gave them to me. And I assure you, Stefan, if you're listening to this, that I will pass them to you exactly as you pass them to me. <laughs> now, in case we gave you the impression that Abdul Qadir was the only resistance leader, there were others, quite, quite a few others. Uh, sometime around 1849, a mysterious man arrived in Kabylia, presented himself as Mohammed ben Abdallah. Isn't that the name of the prophet? Oh, I, I don't know. I Maybe. Yeah. Anyway, he, he's more commonly known as Sharif Bubakla. Probably served as a lieutenant in Abdul Qadir's army, who Abdul Qadir had been defeated in 1847. And Bubakla refused to surrender and showed up in Kabylia. So he began his own war against the French uh, using guerrilla tactics apparently a relentless fighter and very eloquent in Arabic, also very religious, and there are legends of his thaumaturgic skills. So uh, a magician, a wizard? <laughs> uh, he went to Sumer often to talk with high-ranking members of the religious community and soon attracted a woman named Lala Fatma. She was uh, attracted to his strong personality. Uh, he was attracted to her because she was so willing to contribute by any means possible to the war against the French. And she gave inspiring speeches and convinced many men to fight as, well, basically volunteer martyrs, right? And she and other women participated by uh, cooking, by providing medicine, and uh, I, I guess like auxiliary medical support. So the, the sources say that there was a strong bond between Bubakla and Lala Fatma. Um, and, and she saw this as a meeting of peers. It wasn't the traditional submission of a woman to her husband, but more a, like a meeting of the minds of equals. In fact, Bubakla left his first wife um, and then sent his concubine that he you know, had owned as, as a slave. He sent sent her back to her former owner, um, I guess, to free himself for Lala, but she wasn't free. Um, the, I've never seen this term before, tam, tam effect. So a mm, woman who new, left new her husband to, to get back yeah. to his family. Maybe, maybe this is particular to Kabylia. Yeah. But the matrimonial tie was still in place and only her husband could free her. And he wouldn't agree. They offered him bribes, but he, he wouldn't go for it. So their love had to remain platonic, even if you know everybody knew how they felt. So she went to many of the fights that Bubagla was involved in, particularly a battle of uh, Tachikert, which, which he won in 1854. French general Randon, was captured but managed to escape. December 1854, Bubagla was killed, some claim because of treason by his allies, and without their charismatic leader, uh, the movement started to fail. And there was a great uh, council among the fighters and important figures of Kabylia, and they were looking around for a new leader who could replace Bubagla, and their choice fell on Lala Fadma, 
assisted by her brothers. So you have a female leader of resistance against the French. There was a very serious uprising against the French in 1871, partially brought about by crop failures from 1866 to 70, with the resulting uh, disease and malnutrition and all of that. And the French civil authorities had made guarantees to tribal chieftains that there would be loans to replenish their seed supply. And of course, they did not come through. So the tribal chieftains were pretty upset that these guarantees were not met. And there was a mutiny among the Spahis, the uh, Muslim cavalry fighting for the French. They were actually being asked to embark for France to participate in the Franco-Prussian War. And that war was fairly short. And when, when the news came that the French had been defeated, well, obviously their prestige started to sag in Algeria. So this uprising, uh, partly crop failures and, and drought disease, but also the news of the French defeat in the Franco-Prussian War. So the French panicked a little bit and they imposed pretty stern measures to control the entire Muslim population. They confiscated land, more than 5,000 square kilometers. They placed uh, Kabylia under what they called a regime d'exception, extraordinary rule, and denied due, due process of law. There was a special native code, they called it the indigena, listing offenses for acts such as insolence and unauthorized assembly. Now, in French law, there's no such, you know, offenses, but apparently for native Algerians, these are now illegal. And the governor general had the power to jail suspects for up to five years without trial. And, and the argument for this was that exceptional measures were necessary because French law was too permissive uh, to control Muslims. <laughs> yeah these are theoretical so the theoretical innovation follows you know what they have to do uh, on the ground again yeah that's, that's also interesting and they also uh started deporting troublemakers some of them were shipped to uh new caledonia and uh there's even a i think there's a wiki page on on this algerians of the pacific so they must have shipped a fair number out there are those who call France's conquest of Algeria a genocide. Uh, ben Kiernan is an Australian expert on the Cambodian genocide, and he wrote a world history of genocide and extermination, going, going back to ancient Sparta. Uh, and he wrote on the French conquest of Algeria. He says, by 1875, the French conquest was complete. I disagree. Not, not quite. <laughs> not quite. <laughs> the war had killed approximately 825,000 indigenous Algerians since 1830. A long shadow of genocidal hatred persisted, provoking a French author to protest in 1882 that in Algeria, we hear it repeated every day that we must expel the native and, if necessary, destroy him. Yeah, so he agrees with your population estimate. Mm -hmm. um, although he says some of the deaths could be explained by uh, locust plagues, 1866 and 1868. 
Bad Winter, 1867, 68, uh, Famine, and I just, Cholera. I just I just want to say I really hate when they do that. <laughs> yeah, nothing to can, do with the French. Can I just say I, I really hate this. when they do that? But he's he's accusing the French of genocide. Yeah, yeah that's right. He's it's fine. It's okay. I'll, 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 and he's saying it was aggravated by these things. Yeah, I'll stop. I'll stop. Okay. okay. Uh, when France recognized the Armenian genocide, Turkey responded by accusing France of having committed genocide against Algeria. Well. <laughs> Interesting that a lot of the evidence, though, for French atrocities in Algeria come from the French. Right. Yeah. In yeah, addition- which I guess they're not as good at burying evidence as the British, right? I mean, the, the British are the masters of that. Well, some of the excuses are the same. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're just a little more open and honest about it. I- and the Germans are the worst, as we'll see. Well, yeah. <laughs> In that respect, yeah. In addition to cutting down their trees, killing, uh, expropriating, whatever, um, the French also uh, interfered with uh, education. So the Algerians already had schools, uh, religious schools, taught reading and writing. In 1843, the French confiscated the lands that were the main source of income for these religious schools and then set up their own schools, but refused to allocate enough money to maintain them and, and took away the funding for quite a few mosques as well. They yeah. Also- this is, this is very similar to what the British were doing before 1857, where they were saying, I can't believe we're maintaining these heathen institutions at public expense. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, they're, plundering India, uh, you know, to the tune of whatever trillions. But they're like, we shouldn't have to maintain these institutions. Uh, 1892, more than five times as much was spent for the education of Europeans as for Muslims, who had five times as many children of school age. Oh, so that means 25 to 1 funding? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, because very few Muslim teachers had been trained in French educational methods, Muslim schools were largely staffed by French teachers. Even even the state-operated madrasas had French faculty members. So they tried to institute bilingual, bicultural schools to bring Muslim and European children together in the classroom, and they were (laughs) a pretty dramatic failure. Both, both communities rejected them and they were phased out after 1870. So according to one estimate, fewer than 5% of Algerian children attended any kind of school in 1870. As late as 1954, one Muslim boy in five was receiving formal schooling. A- and for girls, one in 16. The level of literacy among the total Muslim population was estimated at 2% in urban areas. In the rural hinterland, 1%. And I mean, I just love this compared to, you know, the claim that we are bringing civilization to these. (laughs) Yeah. In 1890, 
uh, efforts began to educate a small number of Muslims, uh, you know, as part of the civilizing mission. I guess they realized we need some uh, Algerians to work for us, and we need them to have a little bit of education. So uh, the curriculum was entirely French, uh, no place for Arabic studies. And uh, within a generation, they managed to create a class of well-educated, uh, Gallicized, so French Muslims. And they were called les évolués. Évolués, yeah, that's throughout Africa. That yeah. was what they called Literally, them. that means the evolved ones. God. So only a handful uh, of Muslims eventually accepted French citizenship, and almost all of them were évolués, people who had been educated in the French system. What's ironic, what backfired for the French was in addition to, you know, absorbing French culture, they, they also absorbed French political attitudes. And these are the people who started to develop Algerian uh, self-consciousness. Like, here are the roots of Algerian nationalism, you know, taught to them by the French. And then the French basically destroyed the traditional ruling class. So they left most of the people without their leaders and they also eliminated what what they called interlocuteur uh, valable so literally valid go-betweens so the french could not reach the mass of the people because they had you know eliminated all the the traditional go-betweens that this they could have taken a page from the british from with indirect rule yeah, yeah. So there's really no communication between the two communities. And, and the French colonists who ran Algeria, the only Algerians that they spoke to were collaborators who became known as Beni Wiwis. Like the, the yes men. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there were occasional attempts at reform. Uh, French citizenship was offered to Algerians in 1881. 1887, 1890, 1911, they all failed. Uh, but, I mean, not. Be <laughs> here's a typical example. Napoleon III in 1865 said if Muslims wanted to become full citizens, they had to accept the full jurisdiction of the French legal code, including laws affecting marriage and inheritance, and they had to reject the authority of the religious courts. So, right, so all you have to do to be a French citizen and a Muslim is not be a Muslim anymore. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, by contrast, in 1870, the French government granted Algerian Jews French citizenship. Apparently, they didn't have to give up their religion to become French, but that didn't apply to Muslims. That's your Cremieux decree. Oh, there it is. So, okay, so that's, I mean, that's interesting on the Jewish question, too, because we were talking about, like, Rothschild, mm -hmm. and um, there's, yeah, so the West is, I guess, becoming, I guess that's 1870, so yeah. it's, bef I guess this is before Rothschild got into a, Parliament. A right? little bit, but yeah. but don't think that France is, like, some kind of paradise for Jews, don't forget, uh, we got 
the Dreyfus case coming up. We got the Dreyfus case coming up, right? Uh, but you know, this is, uh, I for me, like the Algeria story is is such a such an amazing entry point into all of French colonialism in Africa, right? Like it is, you know, the way that Britain had Egypt and South Africa as precedents, and then they thought of the scramble as maybe connecting them. Uh, France has Algeria from the 1830s and it. it's just sort of an expansion of that model that they imagine. So 